0: Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is Restoring Economic Prosperity. I'm Chris Dauer, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Peter Berkowitz, the Tad and Diane Toby Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Restoring Prosperity, Contemporary and Historical Perspectives. It was recorded on October 23rd, 2017.
1: It's really a pleasure to be here uh, this morning, in this new, new building, for a great topic. Of course, the free market system is the economic face of classical liberalism. These days, classical liberalism is encountering hard times. It's embattled. What that means is that economic prosperity is also imperiled. Now of course, there are many aspects to economic prosperity and throughout the next day and a half, we'll be discussing, as you did with Russ Roberts and continue to do so, mostly and quite properly, the economic aspects of economic prosperity. But I wanna say something about the moral and political foundations of economic prosperity. That takes us to classical liberalism. Classical liberalism, however, as I mentioned, is uh, not only embattled, it's poorly understood these days. To defend economic prosperity, it's also going to be necessary to recover an appreciation of classical liberalism. So that's my task in the next uh, 25 minutes or so, uh, to give an account, a sketch of classical liberalism, how it's connected to economic prosperity, lay out its basic assumptions, its governing principles, and not least the virtues on which classical liberalism, the qualities of mind and character on which classical liberalism and therefore economic prosperity depends. Now, if you want to talk about classical liberalism and you want to talk about classical liberalism at the Hoover Institution, where better to begin than with the one and only Milton Friedman? Just a second, I want to show a clip just to give you some context on this extraordinary screen above my head, uh, a clip. This clip is probably a clip that many of you have seen before, but you can never see it enough. Uh, It's a clip from 1979. Uh, Milton Friedman is uh, appearing on The Phil Donahue Show. In his day, one of the most popular talk shows coming out of Chicago when I was a kid, although I missed this when I was a kid. Uh, In any case, the context is, Phil Donahue is asking Milton Friedman about his life, about capitalism, about freedom, and the question of greed comes up. Okay, please, the Milton Friedman clip.
0: When you see around the globe the maldistribution of wealth, the, the desperate plight of millions of people in underdeveloped countries, uh, when you see so few haves and so many have-nots, when you when you see the greed and the concentration of power with it aren't you ever did you ever have a moment of doubt about capitalism and whether greed's a good idea to run on well first of all tell me is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed you think russia doesn't run on greed you think china doesn't run on greed what is greed of course none of us are greedy it's only the other fellow who's greedy <laughs> this the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests the great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a from a, a bureaucrat henry ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way in the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about the only cases in recorded history are where they where they have had capitalism and largely free trade If you want to know where the masses are worse worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear. That there is no alternative way, so far discovered, of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by free enterprise. But it seems to reward not virtue as much as ability to
1: manipulate the system.
0: Uh, And what does reward virtue? You think the uh, communist commissar rewards virtue? You think a Hitler rewards virtue? You think, excuse me if you'll pardon me, do you think American presidents reward virtue? Do they choose their appointees on the basis of the virtue of the people appointed or on the basis of their political clout? Is it really true that political self-interest is nobler somehow than economic self-interest? You know, I think you're taking a lot of things for granted. And Just tell me where in the world you find these angels who are going to organize society for us? Well, I don't even trust you
1: to do that. I'm going to resist the temptation to recycle that clip five times for the remainder of my remarks, so fabulous it is. A quick review of what Milton Friedman had to teach us. Of course, the world runs on greed, but really what we mean by greed is self-interest. And of course, there's self-interest narrowly construed, and self-interest more widely, more broadly, more properly construed. Moreover, self-interest driving us, that is, a desire, Adam Smith might have put it, to better our condition, drives us not only in economic life, it drives us in political life as well. In economic life, to take advantage of the self-interest that drives us, we create a free market system. Yes, create, because it is a system. It does depend upon the rule of law. In politics, we limit government and we channel the interests because we don't think we can change those interests. This is the lesson that Friedman wanted to teach. Now, what about virtue? Milton Friedman was not unaware that the free market system, the classical liberalism within... Uh, within which it resides also depends upon the character of citizens. It also depends upon the qualities we bring to the workplace, the qualities that we bring to political life, actually the qualities that we bring to private life, trust, honor, courage, self-reliance, rationality, industriousness, and a variety of other qualities of mind and character. But there is a, a hesitation within the classical liberal liberal tradition to speak about the virtues. Why do we have that hesitation? We have that hesitation because we understand within this tradition, about which I'll say more, that we don't want government taking responsibility for supervising the virtues, for cultivating the moral virtues, for enforcing the moral virtues. What we want from the government in the realm of the virtues is to create space, to leave enough room for the institutions of civil society, prominent among which family, faith, and education to cultivate the virtues on which freedom depends. Another way of putting it is this, classical liberalism I'll say more about this. Classical liberalism is the political philosophy on which our constitutional order is based. As Friedman did, in his provocative way, takes self-interested behavior for granted. It's not scandalized by self-interested behavior. It doesn't think that you can change most of human behavior, transform it from self-interested to altruistic. It seeks to channel it for the public interest through well-designed institutions. Again, I'll say more about that. But for the moment, I want to pause and say something about how classical liberalism is embattled. In the first case, let's take the critique of classical liberalism from the left. This is the more common critique of classical liberalism. According to this critique, classical liberalism is merely formal. It says to the government, your job is to protect rights. Your job is to preside over the rule of law. Your job is to make it possible for human beings to interact, to undertake voluntary exchanges, to live their private lives. In doing that, in adopting an austere view of its role, government actually allows for the development of severe, even massive, inequality. Government allows for people to maintain in their heart discriminatory thoughts and feelings, which inevitably receive expression and practice. Such an austere conception of politics allows for harmful, offensive, hateful speech. And worst of all, such limitation allows for a free market system, which, as you could see in Phil Donahue's exchange with Milton Friedman, allows humanity to systematically debase itself by pursuing profit. This is the left-wing critique of classical liberalism, Again, I emphasize, classical liberalism is not any old sort of school of political philosophy. Classical liberalism is the doctrine on which the American constitutional order is based. In recent years, uh, and accelerating in the last two years, we've witnessed the development of a critique of classical liberalism from the right, a conservative critique of classical liberalism. Faithful readers of the Wall Street Journal will have encountered just last week, eight days ago, nine days ago, an article by uh, Yoram Khazoni, uh, an impressive thinker. Khazoni argues that conserva- true conservatism is one thing. Classical liberalism is something entirely separate. We've mixed up these two ideas. And in order to preserve conservatism, which is really has more to do with traditional morality, a narrower conception of nationalism, populism. In order to preserve the true conservatism, conservatives should jettison classical liberalism. Set aside for the moment that that would mean political suicide for the conservative movement because, for example, in the United States, the public opinion data is absolutely clear. There are not enough of such conservatives, as Chazoni defined it in the conservatives in the Wall Street Journal, to get you near a majority. Roughly that describes, at best, 20% of the American electorate. So it would be political suicide. But it's also, it seems to me, intellectually off base. The critique of the conservative critique goes something like this. Yes, classical liberalism seeks to protect rights. And seeking to protect rights, It universalizes politics. It presumes that all people are alike, that there's one political system for all peoples. It leads to, this is Chazoni's critique, aspirations to promote freedom and democracy around the world. Yes, Chazoni in the Wall Street Journal was uh, uh, sharply attacked. Uh, What President Bush uh, said yesterday was, the Bush doctrine, not the Rice doctrine, not the Bush-Rice doctrine, the Bush doctrine promoting democracy abroad. And it leads to a kind of classical liberalism, so the critique goes, leads to a kind of cosmopolitanism that erodes local loyalties and particularistic uh, attachments. What's the reply to these two critiques, left and right? Well, to offer a proper reply, let's back up a little bit, Uh, a short, three-minute introduction. I remind you of what most of you really already know about what distinguishes classical liberalism because it's like prose. We still, to a very significant extent, live classical liberalism. You can distinguish classical liberalism broadly from, on the one hand, the standard classical and medieval alternatives and the modern alternatives, the classical and medieval alternatives, to reduce a great deal into a single formulation. For the classical and medieval alternatives, the very purpose of politics was to promote the virtues, to make human beings excellent. Not that all regimes lived up to that, religious regimes or classical Greek and Roman regimes. But this was the official goal of politics, to promote human excellence. Either, either in secular terms or in terms of salvation, the modern, the great modern alternative to classical liberalism, of course, fascism or communism. What Hayek referred to them both as the socialist alternative. What specifically characterizes the socialist alternative is assigning to government responsibility for the major decisions about economic life production, distribution, consumption. From Hayek's point of view, this inevitably leads to government control not, over, not only over economic life, but all, all, over all aspects of our life. Two great alternatives. One, to promote a vision of modern vision of collectivism or the classical view, medieval view, promote virtue. The classical liberal view says no to both. It says, the very purpose of politics is to promote freedom, individual freedom. What does that mean in practice? Let me sum up the view. Once again, it's familiar to all of you. But in a way, we're losing sight of it in our public life. Mostly, what I'm about to restate comes from the first two or three paragraphs of the American Declaration of Independence, and it's embodied, the ideals are embodied in the American Constitution. First, and very important, it distinguishes classical liberalism for the, uh, all other traditions. All human beings are by nature free and equal. In politics, we decide which rights to protect. But the basic assumption is human, all human beings, by nature, free and equal. We're endowed with certain rights, prominent among these rights that we're endowed with are two, religious liberty and economic liberty. At the dawn of this country, these two rights were the guiding rights, the most important rights for government to follow. Were the other rights unimportant? No, but if these two rights were protected, religious liberty, and here I must point out that religious liberty in the American Constitution in the First Amendment is accompanied by A few other very important rights. The First Amendment protects not only religious liberty, prohibitions on the establishment of of religion, promise to protect the free exercise. What other rights are included in the First Amendment? Speech, press, assembly, and petition, as if to say this set of rights constitutes a constellation of rights. They stand or fall together religious liberty, freedom of speech in the press, freedom to assemble and petition the government for change. A few more propositions. As I said, the principal task of government is to secure these rights. All government power is based on the consent of the governed. That doesn't mean we rule by referendum, that on every decision made by the federal government, state governments county governments, municipal governments, and all the way down were directly consulted. But the idea is that every exercise of power, in the end, has to be traceable back to a decision by the people. Has to be known to the people so the people can, if we wish, change um, those people who are exercising for us, uh, exercising power for us poorly in our estimation, for people whom we hope will exercise it more effectively. Two more points. In order to accomplish its main task, which is to protect freedom, government must be limited. These days, this is one of the biggest divides between conservatives and progressives. One could say a great deal more about this point. But for now, I'll say progressives tend to believe in unlimited government power for the sake of the good. That is, if you think it's going to benefit the the majority of the people, you should do it. The Constitution permits, forbids it. um, let's, Let's try to gloss over that or interpret the Constitution in such a way, never mind that there's no solid basis in the Constitution, in order to accomplish a purpose that we think's for the public good. The conservative view, and I believe this conservative view is more consistent, is consistent with, The original vision, the classical liberal vision, is the first thing we do to government is limit it. We limit it because we worry about abuses of power, because limiting government through, of course, separation of powers, checks and balances, federalism, independent judiciary, um, unitary executive, and so on, limiting government power is one of the great securities to our freedom. And finally, And it's talked about less, but it's extremely important. brings us back to the theme of this morning. Government doesn't directly supervise the virtues. But government makes room for families, for faith, for education, to cultivate the kinds of virtues that we want citizens to bring to public and private life in order both to enjoy freedom, but to do the hard work of maintaining freedom. One very important part of that hard work is uh, producing and distributing goods and services. Let me say something now, give a couple of examples of how in the classical liberal tradition we reconcile limited government with the virtues on which liberty and prosperity depend first example comes from John Locke. John Locke was, uh, if you uh, return to Yoram Khazoni's article from The Wall Street Journal 10 days ago, you'll see John Locke was a principal target. What's the problem with John Locke? John Locke uh, puts individual rights first, and John Locke doesn't pay attention to the dimensions of moral life that go beyond formal rights, and for that matter, that go beyond economic life. First of all, this is not a fair uh, criticism of John Locke. Although it's true that John Locke's great theme in his great political treatise, the Second Treatise of Government, is what are the foundations of our rights? How far do they stretch? What does the limitation of government look like? It's true that his theme is juridical. But in Chapter 6 of the Second Treatise, Check it out. The book's older than 75 years, so at Gutenberg Press, you can find find the text in its entirety. Um, Chapter 6 deals with paternal power. Locke was a man ahead of his time. The book is published 1688, 1699. Locke says, uh, in speaking about paternal power, he's not really comfortable. He preferred to use the term parental power. Because in truth, all the powers that a a father is entitled to exercise over his children, mothers are entitled to exercise as well. What is Locke's interest? Remember, he's primarily concerned with juridical legal questions. The puzzle arises, and it's a puzzle that arises not only for political theorists in the liberal tradition, but in educational policy all the time. By what right do parents control The education of their children. By what right do schools, the public schools, determine what children shall learn? What are the standards? What are the criteria? Locke gives an extremely instructive answer in explaining the power that the state needs to recognize the children that the parents have over children when it comes to education. Recognizing there's a problem, Locke asserts that the Principal justification for the power you exercise over your children in education is to equip your children to think and live for themselves, to turn themselves into free beings. Now, this is not, by the way, an irreligious teaching, since Locke believes that uh, only a religion freely chosen is a religion that one one piously observes. But let's set aside the religious question for a moment. Locke talks about the family, and Locke gives, in a a classically liberal society, a good criterion to us for beginning to think about the distribution of power between parents and the state. And also, by the way, in thinking about power that the state exercises. From the universities all the way down, or I should say from kindergarten all the way up, what should be the end of education? John Locke, it seems to me, gives what remains today an instructive standard, instructive framework for thinking about it. All our education ought to be aimed at forming young men and women who are capable of thinking for themselves and fending for themselves. Let me give another example of how we reconcile limited government and the virtues. This example comes from the Federalist, the great, the authoritative exposition of the principles of the Constitution, uh, written by Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison in starting in the fall of 1787, weeks after the Constitution had been uh, the, the drafting had been completed, and the Constitution was sent out to the states. Now everybody knows that the Constitution is based upon institutions designed to regulate and channel self-interest. Some people think that the Constitution is based on a dark conception of humanity, focusing only on self-interest. And in fact, say, for example, in Federalist Number 10, when Madison says that the American Constitution presents a great solution to the evil that has destroyed democracies from time immemorial, that's faction. A faction is a small group which is selfishly devoted to its own interest, and acts in such a way as to undermine the public interest or invade other people's, other groups' rights. Madison says, our democracy on a continental scale solves that problem. And it solves it in a paradoxical manner. It solves it not by eliminating factions, but by multiplying factions. In the old days, when democracies were small, a majority could tyrannize a minority, or even a powerful minority could create enough mischief to bring a country, to bring a city state down, to bring a democracy down. But when you multiply the factions, you create a situation in, no, in which no one faction has the power to paralyze the country, to so effectively invade rights that there's no recourse. This could seem like a dark solution to the problem of self-interest. What is the doctrine of of the separation of powers, after all? It assumes that our legislators, that our president, even to some extent, what can you do? The justices who sit on the United States Supreme Court will conduct themselves in such a way as to advance, to no trivial extent, their own self-interest. What do we do about that? We do not try to rewrite to transform human behavior. We leave room for virtuous conduct. But we separate the powers so that each branch is in a position to check the other branch, to prevent it from overreaching. So presidents are reminded, once they enter the White House, that they don't make laws. They don't make laws. To make laws, you've got to get a majority in the House of Representatives and, the con- and in the Senate, and so on. We could go through the whole system and identify the ways in which the, uh, our charter of government arranges in complex faction the relations of the branches so that each branch has the power I don't say each will use his power wisely, but each branch definitely has the power to push back on other branches, which, in the nature of things, will always be overreaching. It is in the nature of power, as Madison says in Federalist 51, to be encroaching. All right. Just this much about uh, about the thinking that underlies our Constitution could make you think, Those founders, they really have no place for virtue in the American political system. That opinion couldn't be farther from the truth, although I can see how it's formed. And many people who study these documents hold that opinion. In Federalist number 55, again, you can find this at Gutenberg too. You can find this easily from Googling. Madison says, don't misunderstand what we've been saying. By the way, there are 85 Federalist papers, so Federalist number 55, a series of newspaper articles, is pretty far along in the series. He says to the readers at the end of Federalist 55, don't misunderstand, I understand that temptation. You think we've constructed a system that is oblivious of the claims of virtue. Not true. Indeed, liberal democracy, limited government, a form of self-rule in which the people have the final say through elections. This actually depends upon virtue to an unprecedented extent, because in the old regimes, the old regimes, the classical medieval versions, it's true the aim of politics was to promote virtue, but it presupposed that the people lacked it and the king or the queen or the nobles possessed it. Our system supposes that the people are endowed with enough of the requisite virtues to make responsible decisions. We depend on virtue to a greater degree than any other kind of regime. One final final example, and then I wrap up, because because I want to leave at least a few minutes for questions. This example comes from... uh, a great figure in the tradition of classical liberalism, John Stuart Mill. 1859, Mill published On Liberty. Chapter two of On Liberty deals with liberty of thought and discussion. There should be required readings on campuses generally forgotten. Mill says there are really three cases concerning freedom of speech. In one case, the received opinion what most of us believe could be wrong. If it's wrong, we really benefit from freedom of speech, because we have an opportunity to confront the proper opinion. That may not be pleasant, but it's a great opportunity. And, but Mill says, not less important is the second case, when the received opinion, our opinion, the dominant opinion, is correct. We still benefit from freedom of speech, Why do we benefit from freedom of speech if our opinion is right? Because if our opinion is correct, but it's never challenged, we're never forced to confront the alternatives, we come to hold our opinion, true may it be, as a kind of prejudice, a prejudgment, a dogma. We forget the grounds of our opinion. We forget the real human meaning of our opinion. We forget the implications of our opinion. But finally, Mill says, "This is not the; these are not the majority cases. When the received opinion is is false, the received opinion true is true. Most of the time, we exist in a situation. It's a painful realization, but I think it's true. We live in a situation in which our opinions are a mix of true and false, and the other guy's opinions. Those people with whom we disagree." Their opinions, too, are a mix of true and false. And only in a regime that protects freedom of speech can we figure out what is true in our opinions, what's false in our opinions, and get rid of them. And through the encounter, through the conversation, through the editorial pages, through the give and take that we ought to have at universities, we can also sort out what is true in the opinions that we take ourselves to disagree with. In other words, through limiting government, by keeping government out of the business of regulating speech, we benefit greatly. And you will see the obvious parallels to the economic realm. I add this, and then I'll con- two less points I conclude. One is Mill was aware, however, that there is, he calls it, a real morality of public discussion No bigotry, no intolerance, no vile name calling. He doesn't want government to regulate those matters because it's very simple for those in power to label an opinion with which they disagree, vile name calling. But we do want the institutions of civil society to inculcate these virtues. What can be done today to recover this classical liberalism again? In most of the other um, sessions, you'll be hearing about the economic aspects of economic prosperity. Hugely important here. I just want to underscore some of the moral and political aspects of it. What can we do? What should we be thinking about in the moral and political areas, what kinds of steps to take to contribute to economic prosperity? I think religious liberty is hugely important. Remember. From the point of view of our Constitution, religious liberty and economic liberty, and first I should say, remember, religious liberty is bound up with freedom of speech, press, assembly, and petition. But for the founders, the two fundamental forms of individual liberty were religious liberty and economic liberty. Lose one, and the spirit that supports the other is endangered. I think we need to support family-friendly policies this means, to the extent possible, when it comes to uh, the safety net, when it comes to the tax code, we at least want to. Um, postcards would be great, but between the time we arrive at the tax code on the back or front of a postcard, before that time, uh, as we're winnowing, as we're refining, we should look for. Uh, we should look to eliminate those provisions which make it harder for families to maintain themselves. And finally, uh, a theme, as many of you know, close to my heart. We want a school system which encourages freedom of expression. We want a school system which encourages young men and women to think for themselves, not only for the moral life, not only for the political life, because young men and women who are accustomed to thinking for themselves and depending for themselves are going to be, um, more aggressive entrepreneurs, more reliable pres- producers and distributors, for that matter, more responsible consumers. Thank you very much. I'd be delighted to take a few questions. Thank you. Ah, Please. Thank you for your presentation. My question relates to the latter part of it and it has to do with the concept of
0: diversity on current college campuses. Diversity seems to be a very high virtue when it relates to admissions policy. On the other hand, diversity does not seem to be a high virtue when it relates to free expression on
1: campus. Now you've conducted a lot of research on various campuses. Please tell us some of the results of your research. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get me in trouble. Um, this is a very serious problem. Um, I know uh, Tom and I have discussed this. I know the administration at Harvard. at uh, Harvard, I do have a debate with someone from Harvard on Wednesday. That's why it's on my mind. The administration at uh, Stanford takes this problem very seriously. How do we reconcile diversity, inclusion, and freedom of speech? I have an unorthodox view about this matter. Um, But I think it's sensible, and I'm happy to defend it. Diversity and inclusion at universities is a good, especially diversity of opinion. And freedom of speech is a great good at universities. We mustn't compromise freedom of speech. And we don't need to compromise freedom of speech for the sake of diversity inclusion. How do I mean that? Once I was asked uh, a question something like this, I'm with you on freedom of speech. But really, what does freedom of speech have to offer to historically discriminated against minorities and women? What does it have to offer them? Uh, I, I, refra- I refrain from uh, allowing the tears to flow. First of all, I have to remind all of us, women are not a minority on campus. Women are a majority on campuses throughout the country. But the real answer is this. What does freedom of speech have to offer to minorities and women? The same marvelous benefits that it offers to everybody else, the opportunity to express yourselves as fully as your arguments and evidence will carry you. Not less important, the opportunity to be in an environment where you can encounter a full range of opinions so that you can, as I was, as I was mentioning, sift out what's wrong-headed in your own view and learn from others. And finally, be in an environment truly dedicated to the pursuit of, of inquiry and, and truth. I'll add one more uh, comment, although uh, probably would have been wiser to stop with that. Um, I worry that the current approach to diversity and inclusion encourages students, um, many students, to think of themselves as weak and wounded, to think of themselves as, um, as fragile, and fearful as victims, but also to to become supercilious and sanctimonious. When you have a view that says we we have to regulate speech in all sorts of ways, I would much rather reach out to all students and say, our job here at Stanford is to make you strong and sturdy, curious, skeptical, able to form your own views, And here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to do it. So my own view, once again, just to summarize, is that there's no contradiction between diversity and inclusion and freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a benefit for all of us. And our colleges and universities should be equipping all of our students to take advantage of the great benefits of freedom of speech. Thank you.
0: podcasts from the hoover institution please visit hoover.org or hoover's channels on itunes itunes u stitcher and soundcloud i'm chris dower for the hoover institution thanks for listening